So if you have your Bible, let's turn to Acts chapter 19. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 19, verse 10. And so, so far, what we've seen is when somebody becomes converted, when they are found to be in Christ, they all of a sudden have new desires and new affections. Their old loves and their old desires and their old interests are replaced with others. It's kind of what Paul says. Those who are in Christ are new creations. The old has gone and the new has come. And so when we become new creations in Jesus Christ, all of a sudden there's these new affections and new desires for more of Christ where our affections are being changed and we love Jesus more and we love his church more and we love his mission more. And this is what we're going to see in our our text today among the church in Ephesus, this, this dynamic illustration of new desires and new affections. Because you see, the Ephesians, just like our culture, has many loves and have many desires and many points of interest. And so in Ephesus, they desired sports, they loved the arts and the culture, they loved idols, they loved the pursuit of wealth. And Ephesus was a mighty city known uh, for its many points of interest. But most notably, it was known uh, for, for its renowned temple of Artemis, who was the goddess of fertility. And it was believed that her image fell from heaven and resided in the temple of Artemis. And yet what's happening as Paul enters into Ephesus upon arrival and proclaiming the gospel, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, showing that Jesus is the resurrected Lord and he has far more superior, has far more power than the goddess of Artemis, a major disturbance is taking place. And so we find this phrase in Acts 19, verse 23, where it describes Paul's ministry in Ephesus of a major disturbance that is taking place. And because of this major disturbance, lives are being transformed, eyes are being opened up, people are exchanging their idols for the worship of the living God. And from their point of view, it might be a major disturbance, but from our point of view, it wasn't a major disturbance, but what we like to call a great awakening. And so what I want us to do in our text is we want, I want us to look at, in our text, the events surrounding this great awakening that is taking place and then figure out how we can apply this to our lives. So let's look at this great awakening that's taking place in Ephesus. So Acts 19 verse 10, it says this, this went on for two years so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So if you're taking notes, one of the first events that are taking place in, in Ephesus that has began and has continued is the proclaimed word of the Lord. So now when you think about great awakenings, when you think about revivals, like what is one of the first things that you think about that starts revivals and great awakenings? 
prayer. Like, like most people think it is prayer. But yet when we look at our text and we look at it in Ephesus, what's happening, it started off with and it continued with the proclaimed word of God. Now, I know what some of you are saying, Neil, I'm not seeing revival in the text yet. You just read one verse about the word of God. Hold on, I'm going to tell you. So in verse 10, what Luke is doing is he's almost using, uh, using brackets referring to the word of the Lord. So in verse 10, he's talking about the word of the Lord. And then he talks about everything that's happening. And then he brackets it with the word of the Lord. So look at verse 10. Again, it says, it's a transitional verse. He says, this went on for two years so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. But then in a summary verse, after everything that's happening in verse 20, he brackets it again with the, way, uh, with the word of the Lord. He says in verse 20, in this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. So by him bracketing the word of the Lord, starting it off and ending it, he's emphasizing Paul's ministry in Ephesus with the proclaimed word of the Lord. Later on, when Paul even reflects in his ministry to the, in the church in Ephesus as he talks to these, uh, these elders and he says farewell, he says, I have committed my life to the word of the Lord and I've proclaimed the whole counsel of the word of the Lord to you. Later on in our text, we're going to see how Demetrius, an opposer of God, is complaining because of what Paul is teaching, the proclaimed word of the Lord. And so really, Paul's, the, the causing of this major disturbance, this causing of this great awakening, Paul's message of turning the word upside, world upside down is by him simply proclaiming the word of of the Lord. It is starting this great awakening. And this does not just happen in Acts. It even happens throughout what the Lord is doing. Acts 19, what the Lord has done in all other great awakenings. John Calvin in the great awakening with the Geneva Reformation. He, he preached one sermon every day and two sermons on Sunday. And the, the Lord used his preaching in a mighty way to start a reformation, another great awakening. And, and so the question that we got to ask ourselves is this. What does that look like for us in our day? Does that mean I just simply come on Sundays and sit under good teaching where the word of the Lord is being proclaimed? Yeah, but that's not it. Really what that means for us is, is not only do we sit on Sundays and hear the word of the Lord being proclaimed, but we're in the word of the Lord for ourselves, where we're finding Christ in the word, whether we gather as families or we gather throughout the week in our life groups and we sit in our houses, when we walk along the streets and we talk to our community and to our neighborhood, what do we do? We're constantly proclaiming the word of the Lord. And this is how great awakening starts. Any of us have a desire for a great awakening, another revival taking place and seeing the Lord do miraculous things? It starts with the word of the Lord. You getting in it, discovering Christ in it, being overwhelmed by Christ and appointing others to it as Christ is being magnified. And so this is what we see so far in Acts 19. The word of the Lord is being proclaimed and it's causing a major disturbance. Let's, let's, let's see what else happens in verse 11. It says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hand 
so that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So, so Luke is telling us that these signs and these wonders and these extraordinary miracles are being performed by God through the hands of Paul. Now, unfortunately, when we read this text, uh, there, there's two kind of extremes that we've seen. We either see a denial of these things or we see an abuse of these things. We see people reading verse 11, reading verse 12, and trying to mimic it, mimic it or duplicate it, focusing on the signs and the wonders. And I think the best way to look at it when we look at the text in the context, and here's a simple question for you, and I think a very simple answer. When we read verse 11 and verse 10, what comes before verse 11? Verse 10. And what's in verse 10? The word of the Lord. So in other words, the idea is as the word of the Lord is being proclaimed, God is performing these signs and these wonders and these extraordinary miracles. So in other words, it is these signs and these wonders that's not replacing the word of the Lord, but it's supporting the word of the Lord, propping up the word of the Lord. And yet the emphasis is the word of the Lord. Another way to look at it too is because some of us look at it and we're thinking, should we mimic these things? Should be there be special rugs and aprons that we bless one another and people are being healed as we pursue these things? And the best way also to look at it is think about who's performing these miracles. What does verse 11 tell you? Who's performing it? It says, God was performing these activities. Paul, he was simply an instrument. And one of the things we've seen throughout the book of Acts is just the sovereignty of God and how he ministers to people in different ways and in different times. Sometimes, when the Spirit would fall on somebody and be filled with the Spirit, when they were getting saved, it's audible, it's visible. Why? Because somehow the Lord is ministering to these people and those around them through an audible, a visible display of the Spirit. But other times, you don't read about it. Sometimes, like Lydia's household being converted, they simply hear the word of the Lord. Any miracles? No miracles. But here in Ephesus, the word of the Lord is being proclaimed. And what are we reading about? signs and wonders and extraordinary miracles and so what is the Lord doing he's ministering to these people in Ephesus in a specific way because God in his sovereignty and his sovereign power understands who he's ministering to in these people in Ephesus Ephesus the Ephesians were all caught up with hocus pocus and witchcrafts and signs and wonders and fortune telling and what is the Lord doing the Lord is performing miracles among them to show them that he is the ultimate sovereign power and everything. And then their goddess of fertility, Artemis, is absolutely powerless compared to what God can do. So, so if you're taking notes, some of the events that are surrounding um, the, the, this great awakening, is, it starts off with a proclaimed word of God. But then the second thing, if you're taking note, is this is God is displaying his power. God is displaying his power. And so God performed great miracles by the hands of Paul among the people in Ephesus. Can God do miracles today? Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, the extreme is we either read verse 10 in isolation 
or we read verse 11 and 12 in isolation. But what do we find? Verse 10, 11, and 12. But another thing that we have to understand with miracles is the Lord does perform great miracles today. But what we have to understand is the greatest miracle that the Lord can possibly perform is not some man getting out of his wheelchair. It's not the eyes of the blind being opened or the deaf able to hear or somebody being healed from cancer, but rather the greatest miracle that God is performing and can perform and will perform is the dead being raised. Think about this. What is salvation? The Bible describes us as what before God? We are dead in our sins. Children of darkness, captured under the domain of darkness. And Paul says when Jesus comes along, we've been, we were dead in our sins, but we've been now made alive in Jesus Christ. We were spiritually dead and made alive. And we have to understand that salvation is ultimately the greatest miracle that God can do. Because how cruel will it be for a man who was in bondage to his wheelchair, get out of his wheelchair and still yet be in bondage to sin and damned for eternity? And this is what we have to understand. What does the Lord do? The Lord performs great miracles as he's calling and drawing a people to himself through the proclaimed word of the Lord. And so, so one of the questions I want to ask you just to think about before we move on is have you experienced God's saving power in your life? Have you seen how you were dead in your sins and now made alive in Jesus Christ? Have you seen some of your desires and your affections being changed? And we see this great awakening taking place. The word of the Lord is being proclaimed. God's displaying his power. But what happens sometimes with signs and wonders, extraordinary miracles? There's always people who take it and abuse it. We see that in our culture. We see people in our culture who abuse the name of Jesus for, for, for um, profit, personal gain. And you know what we're going to see in our text? The exact same thing. We're going to see people who witness the ministry of Paul and say, you know what? I think I can do that. I think there's some great money to be made in using this name of Jesus and healing people and casting out demons. So because we don't want people to go to them. To Paul, we want people to come to us. And this is what we're going to see and look at the end result. So let's look at how these people abuse the name of Jesus for, for profit and personal gain. Verse 13, Acts 19, verse 13. It says, Now some of the itinerant Jews, exorcists, also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I commanded you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, prevailed against them so that they ran out of that house naked and wounded. And when this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. So when signs and wonders and extraordinary miracles perform, there are always people who will tend to abuse it for personal gain. And this is what happened in our text. So you have this seven sons of Sceva. Obviously, uh, Sceva was their biological father, father, and he was known as a 
chief priest. Now, now we really don't know much information about him. Uh, maybe he gave himself that title and he didn't occupy the position. Or maybe he was genuinely a chief priest and his sons abandoned Judaism altogether. But what we do know in that culture, especially in Ephesus, they were Jewish exorcists who were known for their strange Hebrew incantations. The Ephesians were attracted to the dark arts, to sorcery, witchcraft, hocus-pocus, to provide them a cure of their diseases or a special blessing in their lives. And so it was very common for these frauds to borrow names and, and techniques to use in their incantations. And so after observing Paul's ministry, seeing the power by using Jesus' name, they're thinking to themselves, Hey, let's go ahead and do it. I command you in the name that, of Jesus that Paul preaches. We really don't know him, but Paul uses that name. Get out. And what happened? It backfired. And so after trying to use Jesus' name to their hocus-pocus acts to cast out this evil spirit, these sons got severely humiliated. And as demons often do throughout the New Testament, they testify about the power of Jesus Christ. Just think about this idea. Jesus is so powerful that even the demons correctly testify about his power. When's the last time you've seen anybody so powerful that their enemies shudder and testify about their power? Even the demons testify and shudder at the name of Jesus. And they look at these seven sons of Sceva and said, we know Jesus is powerful. We can't touch him. We can't beat, he's unbeatable. And we know about Paul that Jesus is using. But we don't know anything about you. And since we can't touch Jesus nor touch his servants and you're not his servants, we sim I simply can touch you. And instead of casting this demon out of this man, this man becomes severely strong. He beats them, strips them down, and they run out of that house naked and covered in blood. But you know what's the most fantastic part of the story? Is the results. Look at verse 17 here. After certain men tried to abuse the name of Jesus for personal gain, look at verse 17. When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. Here's the third event that surrounds a great awakening, if you're taking notes. It's not only just the proclaimed word of the Lord. It's not only just God displaying his power but it is people magnifying the name of the Lord Jesus. The name of the Lord Jesus is held in high esteem, magnified, exalted. They tried to profit off the name of Jesus, and it backfired. And as a result, the name of Jesus was held in high esteem. And I even think some practical applications for us. Anybody getting tired of people abusing the name of Jesus for personal profitable gain? Like it makes our job harder. And yet, what's God doing? Even through these knuckleheads, his name is being highly esteemed and exalted and praised. As God is displaying his power, as the word of the Lord is being proclaimed. 
Now I know you're saying, no, I still have not read about a revival. Here it finally is. Look at verse 18. It says, and, and many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices. And while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burnt them in front of everyone, so they calculated their values and found out to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Verse 20, and in this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. So what does Luke tell us? Luke tells us that these believers, these new converts who were radically transformed, who had new desires and new affections, they were confessing and disclosing their practices. Some of them realized for the first time that faith in Jesus and participation in these magic, these wicked, uh, dark occults were incompatible. And instead of selling their books, what did they do? They burnt them. They destroyed them. And it shouldn't shock us that they burnt or just destroyed these books. Why? Because this is what Jesus do. He radically transforms our lives. Not only does it instant, but he also does it progressive. He changes our desires. He changes our affections. And so after believing in Christ, uh, there comes to a realization there are often practices, there are often ways of living, there are often beliefs and things that we do that are incompatible when it comes to following Jesus. You cannot have both. And this is what these, these people discovered. I cannot pursue the dark arts and the occults and all of these things and still have Jesus. And so we see the fourth event surrounding this great awakening as the word of the Lord was being proclaimed and God displaying his power and people are magnifying the name of Jesus. Here's the fourth thing. There was a confession and a renouncing of sin. There was a confession and a renouncing of sin. It wasn't just saying, you know what, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it again but a renouncing of it, a destroying of it. I love the fact that they burnt their books and did not sell them and didn't just give them away and say, you know what? I don't need these things. Maybe you use them because it's just not good for me. They burnt them. You know why they burnt them? So that no one could see them and so that they will never be tempted to go back. This is how we have to deal with sin. We can't just confess it and put it to the side and give it off to somebody else. We have to kill sin. We have to renounce it. We have to destroy it. We have to nail it to the cross and keep it there. Because living in our sin and following Jesus is incompatible. You cannot do both. And one of the desires I have for us as we look at everything that's going on, there's this great awakening where the people of God are serious about confessing their sins and renouncing their sins. But here's a tendency that we have to do. And the reason I say we have a tendency to do it because then I know it's true for you. And the reason I know it's true for you is because it's also true for me. We have a tendency to take our sin and domesticate it. This is what I mean by it. 
There's an article that I read about how to deal with sexual sin, and the author, uh, who was a transgender woman, uh, kind of talked about this idea. What we do with our sin, we have a ten- tendency to domesticate our sin. What do we have a tendency to do sometimes with wild animals? We play with tigers, and we think what? We can domesticate them. We can put a collar around their neck. We can name them. And then when the tiger turns around and destroys us, what happens? We're shocked. What did you expect playing with a tiger? It's a wild animal. Animals cannot be domesticated. I don't, I don't care how cute little Smooky is. Smooky is wild. And this is what sin does. Sin is a wild animal that will destroy you. But what do we do? We put a collar on it. We name it. We keep it around. We cohabit with it thinking, you know what? It's bad, but it's not that bad. I can manage it. I can deal with it. I can handle it. You're domesticating it. And then you turn around, and that sin turns around and destroys you and devours you. We need to confess our sins. We need to renounce our sins. Stop domesticating your sin and start putting it to death. Nail it to the cross and keep it there to the cross. Stop self-justifying. You cannot handle it. And what we have to understand, and one of the things I I think we really struggle in our culture is self-justification. We self-justify, believe that we can follow Jesus and bow down to these idols and domesticate our sin. They are incompatible to each other. You cannot worship Christ and bow down to these idols. We have to put them to death. And this is what the church did in Ephesus. And and here's the good news. The good news is you can put these things to death. Why? Because of what Christ has done for you. He set you free from the bondages of sin. That sin has no hold over you anymore. You can say no to that sin. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. And the best news of it is, you're not putting these things to death so that you can have Jesus. You're putting these things to death because you have Jesus. Like like that is the gospel. The gospel is not I do, Christ do. The gospel is Christ has done. I simply do because of what Christ has done. I can put to death these idols. I can put to death these sins because of what Christ has done for me. Because what I see in Christ is far more greater than what these idols and what this sin can offer. And, and so we look at these, the, this church in Ephesus and we're thinking to themselves, man, they burnt almost a thousand, thousands of dollars, even millions of dollars worth of books. Like, that seems radical. That seems extreme, doesn't it? Well, let me ask you this. Is giving up something inferior for something superior radical? Is giving up something lesser for something greater radical? Isn't that called logic and common sense? And yet this is what we do when we give up our sin, when we lay down our idols, we're giving up these inferior, these things that will never satisfy, never give meaning, never hope, because we have Jesus who can give hope, who can satisfy, who gives us joy and peace and meaning in life. So where does it start? I don't believe it starts with putting sin to death. I believe it starts with having a right view of Jesus. Again, think about the order of this great awakening. The word of God is being proclaimed. 
people are getting to hear about Jesus' life, death, and burial, and resurrection, the work of God through the Son of God. God is displaying his power in radically transforming people. And as a result, the name of Jesus being highly exalted and esteemed and lifted up. And because you have a high view of Jesus and you know who he is, you can start laying down your idols. So, so, so maybe practically some of you have some idols that you're wrestling with. Some of you have some sin that you've domesticated. And my, 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 my not advice, my crying out to you, my pleading with you is put those things to death. But before you can put those things to death, do you know who Jesus is? Do you marvel at the name of Jesus? Are you captivated by Jesus? Are you overwhelmed by Jesus? Is your heart and your affection stirred by Jesus? And how does that happen? Through the proclaimed word of the Lord, through reading the word of the Lord. You want to know Jesus? Get in the word. You want to be captivated by Jesus? Get in the word. I, I think about scripture uh, throughout, uh, throughout the Bible that, that talks about the, the word of the Lord. Like, like I think about Psalm 12, verse 6. It says, the word of the Lord is like pure words, like silver refined in an earthen furnace, purified seven times. The, the psalmist in Psalm 1, verse 1 to 2 says, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instructions, and he meditates upon it day and night. So Psalm 19, verse 7 talks about how the word of the Lord renews one's life. It says, the Lord's instructions of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. You want a high esteem of Jesus? Get in the Word. Read the Word. Memorize the Word. Meditate on the Word. When you surround yourself with community, get in the word. Because what community is community without the word? That's just simply a country club or a little clique. Genuine community is people that are in the word of the Lord. And it's only when we're in the word of the Lord and we magnify the name of Jesus can we confess our sin, renounce our sin, and put these things to death. And you look at verse 20. After he describes this revival, he says, in this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. You know what that means? The word of the Lord was proclaimed. The word of the Lord was obeyed. That's it. It was obeyed in faith, trusting, believing that Jesus is greater than these idols, greater than these books could ever offer. He's the answer. He's the meaning. He's the hope. He's the peace. He's the joy. He is life. These books Cheap imitations doesn't do a thing. And so after summarizing how the power of Jesus was displayed in Ephesus and spotlighting the triumph of the word of the Lord, Luke tells us opposition arose. And, and, and what do we read in Acts throughout the book of Acts? You, you see the same pattern. The word of the Lord is being proclaimed. People are being radically saved. And what happens? Opposition. 
What happens again? Opposition. Look at verse 23 since we're running out of time. Verse 21 and 22 just talks about Paul's travel plans. You can read it through the week. But verse 23, look at this opposition. It says, about that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. That's basically Paul's ministry. For a person, verse 24, named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. And when he had assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hands are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin. The very one all of Asia and the world worship. So as a result of Paul's gospel-centered, Christ-exalting, spirit-empowered ministry, it's impacting the local economy and is causing an uproar. So the disturbance that's taking place, there's a man, Demetrius, who realizes, who's in the business of making idols. And he realizes profit is going down. Why? Because the demand of these things are going down. And he starts tracking, why is profit down? Why are we not making as many idols? And he realizes, it's because that Paul dude is preaching the gospel. He's preaching that what we are making are not really God's. And it's impacting our profit. It's impacting our pockets. And he gets angry and he starts gathering all of his buddies around and say, hey guys, we're in, we're, we're in trouble here. We've made good business off this money. Some of us have retired from this. It's a reputable business. It's a sure guarantee to make a lot of money and we're all good at it but you've noticed business is down. The demand is down. And it's because of Paul preaching Jesus. And if this continues, we'll be out of a job and then our goddess Artemis might not be worshipped anymore. But here's the reality. Demetrius, what was his idol? Artemis or money? Money. He didn't care about Artemis. He don't care about doctrine cares about dollars. That's all he cared about. And when his idol was confronted by the word of the Lord, instead of repenting, he got angry. What do we do when our idols are being confronted and our idols are being threatened? How do we respond? Anger. That's what we do. Our idolatry of freedom. Somebody touches our freedom, what happens? We get mad. Somebody touches our rights that we bow down to, think it gives us hope and it makes us human. What do we do? We get angry. And this is how Demetrius responded. This is how the mob mentality responded. And you see even God's grace, what is he doing? Even though Demetrius is not listening to Paul, God in his grace is confronting Demetrius in his idolatry. And he responds in anger. And look at this mob mentality and the chaos that ensues in verse 28. When they heard this, 
They were filled with rage and began to cry out. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed all together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. And although Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples did not let him. Even some of the provincial officials in Asia, who were his friends, sent word to him, pleading with him not to venture into the amphitheater. Some were shouting one thing and some another because the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. Some Jews in the crowd gathered instructions to Alexander, and after they pushed him to the front, motioning with his hand, Alexander wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What happens in the mob mentality? Nobody knows. Chaos. They don't even know why they're there. One shouting one thing, the other one shouting another. They're just shouting because they're shouting, and they don't even know why they're shouting. You know why you're here? No, I don't know. I just know we're angry. What are you angry? I don't know. We're just angry. And then this, this is what's happening in our text, this typical mob mentality. That's what happens in mob mentalities with riots. We're just rioting. Why? Well, we don't know. We're just angry. And somebody tried to calm them down, but they couldn't get calmed down. And for two hours in this amphitheater, they just shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, Paul has experienced great persecution by the Jews throughout his ministry, and also right now by the Ephesians. But I love how the Lord has protected him from persecution. Look at how the Lord protects him uh, from, uh, from, from, from being destroyed through the city clerk. Verse 35, when the city clerk had calmed the crowd down, he said, people of Ephesus, what person is there who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great Artemis and of the image that fell from heaven? Therefore, since these things are undeniable, you must keep calm and not do anything rash. For you have brought these men here who are not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess. So if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a case against anyone, the courts are in session and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it must be decided in legal assembly. In fact, we run the risk of being charged with rioting for what happened today since there is no justification that we can give as a reason for this disturbance. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Now, we're out of time here. But this is what this text is showing us. This story shows us how do you advance the kingdom of God. And I just simply realized I forgot the last point for your note-taking. I was about to land the plane. The last note-taking, sorry, is, is this. The gospel impacts social norms, okay? So in a great awakening that's taking place, the word of the Lord is being proclaimed. God's power is being displayed. The name of Jesus is being lifted up. People are renouncing and confessing their sins. And as a result of it, it's impacting the social norms. That's what the gospel does. It impacts social norms.
Think about this story here. Think about application. How's the kingdom advancing? It's being advanced through the proclaimed word of the Lord. Not through weapons, not through force, not through protests or through violence, but simply proclaiming the word of the Lord. And as Paul is preaching the word of the Lord, God's displaying his power. Lives are being radically transformed. Eyes are being opened through the Holy Spirit. Jesus' name is being lifted up. People are confessing and renouncing their sins, laying down their idols, putting their sins to death, nailing it to the cross and keeping it there. And as a result, a major disturbance is being caused. The gospel is impacting social norms. Think about our culture. It's a very weird time we live in. I don't know what to make of it, to be quite honest. I'm not going to speculate or do anything like that. But it's a weird time. It seems like evil is prevailing. It seems like the forces of darkness is active. And it seems like we're angrier than ever before. And I'm not talking about people out there. I'm talking about people in here. There is an anger. And I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about me. There is an anger in my heart. That's not a good anger. It's a sinful anger. Why? Because the comfort of my living is under threat. My security, my freedoms, and my rights slowly but surely being taken away. If we want to see a great awakening, if we want to see a revival taking place, if we want to see the world being turned upside down or being turned right side up doesn't start with me being angry and being violent and have a mob mentality rioting and protesting I'm not attacking your views that's your views I'm simply just teaching the word it starts with the proclaim word of the Lord you want to make a difference proclaim the word of the Lord before you proclaim it get in it as you proclaim the word of the Lord Watch God's power being displayed as he's saving people. Watch God's power being displayed as he's opening them up, taking them out of the domain of darkness into his marvelous light. Watch the name of Jesus being magnified and esteemed and exalted on high as people are confessing their sins, renouncing it, as the gospel is impacting every aspect. But I think here's the disconnect Here's what we struggle with, because this is what I struggle with. Sometimes we fail to believe the power of the gospel. Because this is what, seriously, like, like even as I'm preaching the gospel to, 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 to people, in the back of my mind I'm thinking, I'm just wasting my time. They're not hearing. They're not listening. It's not going to make a difference. But yet, what does Paul say in Romans chapter 1, verse 16? I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So what is the gospel? It's God's power for 
salvation to those who believe. This is why I think it's ironic that um, Church Planning Sunday falls on this text. We want to turn our community, our state, and our country upside down or right side up. We want to advance the kingdom of God. Proclaim the gospel as we plant churches. That is planting churches. That's proclaiming the gospel. That's pointing people to Jesus and not to self. This is what we're called to do. This is what happened in Acts. This is what happened throughout the history of the church. And I believe this is what can even happen today. So my challenge for you today, before you proclaim it, get in the word. If you're in the word, start memorizing, meditating on and proclaiming it. And if you're not proclaiming, get in the word, just just read it. Ask the Lord to reveal to you. Memorize it, meditate upon it. Talk to your wife or your husband about it. Talk to your children about it. Talk to your group about it. Talk to one another and see what the Lord is doing, how he's transforming you and transforming the people around you. Let me pray for us. Our Holy Father, we thank you that you have made yourself known through your word that was spoken and written down, and you've also made yourself known through your living word, Jesus Christ. Thank you for opening up our eyes to your truth. May we, Lord, as we get in your word this week, be overwhelmed by you as you stir our affections, as you change our desires for you, as we're renouncing the old, putting to death the idols that we're holding onto, the sins that we've domesticated, putting it to death, knowing that we have you, who is far greater than anything this world or this idol or our sin could ever offer. Lord, stir in us this desire. As we continue to pray, there are some questions I just want you to think about today and maybe throughout the week. And I hope that as I ask these questions that the Holy Spirit will almost burn them in your minds and in your thoughts throughout the week. The first one is just a question of examination in your life. The very, here's the first question. How have you experienced or witnessed a change in affections through conversion? In other words, as you look at your life and you see that you are in Christ, how have you seen Christ change some of your desires and some of your affections? I think it's a good question for all of us, a good question for examination. How have you seen the old being renounced and the new being desired? Or are you constantly living in the old, chasing after them and have abandoned the new? The second question is this. What sin or idol is in your life that you need to put to death? Like what sin or idol is Jesus confronting right now for you and say, you need to put this to death. You cannot have both. You cannot have me and this idol. 
Holy Spirit, you know right now what we're thinking. You know the idols that we're clinging to. You know the sin that we've justified and have domesticated and we think it's okay. Can you confront those? Can you give us the, the, the wisdom to identify them and the discernment? Can you give us the strength and the power to put them to death? Can you give us the perspective that Jesus is far greater than these idols that we're bowing down to and the sin that we think we need in our lives? And can these questions really haunt us throughout this week as we reflect and as we examine, as we get into your word and as we marvel at you? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.